0: What you're about to hear might be completely opposite of everything you've heard before about nutrition, but I want you to keep an open mind. Chances are, if you follow me, it won't be completely opposite of what you hear from me, but completely opposite from all those influencers out there on Instagram and TikTok and Facebook and just the internet in general, to be honest. Today, we are doing a whole episode on nutrition myth-busting. And I'll be honest, there were a lot of things that I believed to be true about nutrition before becoming a registered dietitian, because I listened to these popular nutritionists who were very passionate and charismatic, and they just seemed believable. And it's way more fun to listen to someone like that than to, like, read a research article, right? Today, we're talking to the food science babe, Aaron, who is an actual food scientist. Yes, that's a thing and she's going to share what the actual science says about common food and nutrition myths. Welcome back to Feeding Toddlers Made Easy. I'm Casey Barnes, registered dietitian nutritionist, and I'm just thrilled you're here with me today because God, I love nutrition. I picked the right career path for myself because I just find this stuff so incredibly interesting, how it impacts the body and what the actual science says. Like, how cool is it that we can actually study these things? I just think it's amazing. So anyway, we are going to talk to the food science babe in just a second here. Anything that we mention on the podcast, links, discounts, whatever, that's all at momknowsnutrition.com forward slash podcast. Hey Erin, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so pumped that you're here today because I really am a nutrition nerd at heart and I feel like we get to nerd out a little bit today. So will you tell people a little bit about you and what you do? Yeah, so I
1: actually have my bachelor's in science in chemical engineering. I started out of college, just happened to end up in the food industry and was in more of an engineering role, but ended up sort of more wanting to do like research and development. So that's kind of how I came about to be more in the food science side of the food industry. Still definitely use my engineering background as well, but as a food scientist, so I've been a food scientist now for over a little over 10 years. I'm um, working in the conventional sector of the industry, as well as the organic sector, working for large companies, small companies. Now I do consulting more for small startup companies, mostly here in the Minneapolis area. So doing some product development work, as well as creating nutrition panels, doing sort of like regulatory guidance for these companies, because typically smaller companies don't really have, you know, a regulatory group or a group that does that. So I kind of help with that along with product development work. So
0: awesome. And tell us about your Instagram and TikTok. Yeah. Yeah, so I started my Food
1: Science Babe pages, I think it was 2018. So I just started seeing a lot of misinformation regarding food and the food industry. And there were a lot of great dietitians that were, you know, combating a lot of the nutrition misinformation. And I didn't really see a lot from like the food science perspective. And so It just got to the point where I was getting really frustrated with it. At the time I was staying home with my daughter. And so I had some extra time, you know, I was like, oh, I'm just going to start a page. And it ended up turning into a lot more work than I thought it was going to. (laughs) But um, yeah, I mean, a lot of the stuff that I cover too are things that I believed in the past. And so a lot of these come from biases that I used to have. And so I was like, you know, man, it would have been nice if I would have happened upon science-based information when I used to believe these things. So that's a huge reason why I started my page as well. And then also after becoming a mom, just realizing how much of this, you know, fear-based type marketing that I talk about a lot is targeted specifically towards moms of young children. And after becoming a mom, like realizing that even more, even though I sort of knew it already being in the food industry. And so, you know, just trying to reduce anxiety around
0: food, because that has been problematic for me in the past as well. So yeah, I love that you do it. And I applaud you for doing it, because it is not a kind space to be in sometimes on the internet. People can be really nasty and will get out of the way first that you don't work for Monsanto. No, nope, never have. You're not
1: <laughs> secretly working for
0: the government. And nope. you all all opinions are your own. Yes. <laughs> I do appreciate it too, though, because I I was in the same space as you. Like before I went back and got my nutrition degree, there were so many things that I believed to be true because. They sounded like it, you know, and it, I wasn't getting actual research backed advice. So I'm really glad that you're a voice that people can turn to. Uh, she's just food science babe on Instagram and TikTok. So yep. y'all definitely want to give her a follow. We're going to hop right in with just some common nutrition myths that are floating around out there and talk through it. So the first one that I wanted to hit on was the dirty dozen, because I feel like this thing just won't go away. And it's just such a catchy phrase too, right? The dirty dozen. But like, what's the deal with that? Yeah,
1: so that is a, a list that comes out every spring. It's from the Environmental Working Group, which, you know, they they seem like a legitimate organization, like a science-based organization, but they are not. So they are funded largely by the, you know, organic industry so organic food companies you know i don't just discredit them based on that fact but it's it's good to know just because i always get the question of like why are they doing this and it's like their whole purpose is basically to get consumers to buy more organic products and so the way they do that with the dirty dozen is they create this list of 12 what they call dirty foods and it's different vegetables and fruits that are on this list Basically how they come to make this list is they take the the data that the USDA, they take data every year on pesticide residues. So they're not taking their own data. They're just taking this publicly available data from the USDA and they're essentially counting the number of different pesticides. They're not taking into account the actual chemical and how that, how it relates to the specific tolerance level that is set for that specific chemical, because obviously different chemicals have different toxicities. And so these tolerance levels have been set based on extensive toxicity data. They're set very conservatively. And then on top of that, the the amounts that they end up detecting are, you know, hundreds to thousands of times below these already conservatively set tolerance levels. And when the EWG makes that list, they're not taking into account at all, like how those levels compare to the tolerance levels and how much lower they are than those set tolerance levels. So really that USDA data is showing us year after year how safe our produce is from a pesticide residue perspective. And they're taking that and they're basically scaring consumers just based on like counting the number of pesticides and counting the total volume when that doesn't make any sense. I mean, you have to understand what the chemical is, what the dose is. If none of that's being taken into account, it's not telling you anything helpful. And so they're making this list based off of that, which is not, you know, science-based at all, and they're scaring consumers into, you know, saying you definitely need to buy organic versions of these 12, you know, fruits and vegetables that we have deemed the dirtiest fruits and vegetables. And it's just ridiculous because like I said, I mean, that data is showing us year after year. Um, it's like 99% of what they test is well below the tolerance levels. So it's showing us that it's safe. I've shared this calculator that shows you how many servings of these fruits and vegetables you'd have to eat to reach a potentially harmful level based on the highest level the USDA has ever detected. And stra- I always take strawberries because they're usually at the top of their list. And it's you, you'd have to eat like 400 plus servings of strawberries every single day for an extended period of time (laughs) for it to be like potentially a harmful level of pesticides. So it's ridiculous that they're scaring consumers, you know, especially when a lot of Americans are not getting enough servings of fruits and vegetables as it is. So if you want to buy organic, like that's fine. I'm, I'm not saying like that's bad or anything, but to be scared into it. And then also for people that don't have access, it can be harmful because they might not even have organic produce at their grocery store or they can't afford it. And I know myself, when I used to loosely follow this dirty dozen list, you know, I would, if the organic strawberries just didn't look very good or if they were too expensive, like I just wouldn't buy any because I'm like, well, I'm, I'm afraid of the conventional based on this list. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it can cause people to just eat less fruits and vegetables overall, which can be obviously very harmful. The other thing too, is that they don't include in their analysis organic produce, which organic does use pesticides as well. And organic pesticides aren't necessarily safer than conventional. And however, organic produce is going to be safe as well, but they don't include that in their analysis at all. And in fact, the USDA, when they test for pesticide residues, a lot of the organic pesticides aren't even tested for. So we don't really have like a true reading. That's not to say, I'm not trying to say like, it's not safe or anything. I'm just saying like, it's biased in the way that like, they're not even taking organic into account in their analysis. And so, I mean, really the bottom line is like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really even look at it. I mean, I know it comes, I know it gets a lot of press year after year. I'm, it, it seems to be getting less every year. I'm not sure if that's true, but yeah, I really wouldn't shop based on it at all. And really anything that EWG comes out with like related to food or even cosmetics, like just be aware that it's not necessarily like science-based information. They're trying to get money for their organization. And they're trying to get consumers to purchase organic. So yeah,
0: that all makes sense. And I think what I want to unpack a little bit more for people is just to help them wrap their idea around these tolerance levels. And I often hear from parents like, well, if this could be harmful, don't I want my child to have absolutely none of it? Like, shouldn't I try to avoid it at all costs? So what would you say to that?
1: Yeah, so I, we have to understand whether it's a chemical that's being, you know, sprayed in the form of a pesticide or even naturally occurring chemicals in fruits and vegetables. We have to understand that the dose makes the poison applies to literally everything we consume. Even water can be harmful at a high dose, and so we we have to understand the toxicity of not only you know pesticides but just like chemicals in the foods themselves. And so I always like to use the example of there's naturally occurring formaldehyde in, you know, things like apples and pears. And of course, like there can be a harmful level of that chemical, right? But like, we know that apples and pears aren't harmful because they contain that chemical. So it's the same thing with pesticides. And I mean, pesticides are actually going to be tested a lot more rigorously than even some of these naturally occurring compounds in things. So we really understand, like what the you know safe levels are. And, like I said, they are set very conservatively. So there are um safety factors built in. So it's based on a lot of toxicity data. But then safety factors are also built in. So like they'll be divided by like a hundred to a thousand. And then on top of that, they're being detected hundreds to thousands of times below those levels. So, I I know it's difficult to understand. Like when you say like they're safe levels, I mean, I, I get the argument of like, well, I don't, I don't want it at all, but, but it is safe, just like everything else you consume. I mean, you're consuming a safe level of water every day, whereas like there could be a harmful level of water. So it literally applies to everything that we eat. And like I said, organic is going to use pesticides too. you know, in order to grow enough food and not take up, so much more land than we already take up. like pesticides are necessary. and so, yeah, it, I guess all I can say is that it is safe, and we understand, you know, these pesticides are tested very rigorously to understand like what is safe, what isn't safe. And so I, I understand that fear, but but yeah, I would say I would say we are, you know, based on the the levels that we are detecting on produce, they are at incredibly safe levels.
0: Now, along those lines of safety, I feel like there's also this big push towards more natural. Natural is better and safer. And we see it in food. We see it in skincare and beauty. What are people missing when they make that argument that natural must be safer and is somehow better?
1: Yeah. So I talk about basically it's the appeal to nature fallacy. So humans are intuitively very bad at assessing risk. So we tend to assume that things that are natural are safer and things that are synthetic are less safe. When in reality, like natural comp there, I mean, some of the most deadly compounds that we know of are naturally occurring and they're going to have overlapping toxicities with synthetic chemicals. And so again, like we just need to understand what the chemical is and, you know, what the safety profile is regardless of if it's natural or synthetic. Because if we just assume natural is better and replace everything that's synthetic with natural, it could end up being less safe because we we still have to understand the safety of a compound if it's naturally occurring as well. So.
0: Yeah, I think that we just need to keep putting that message out there to people that just because you can't pronounce it or you don't recognize it doesn't necessarily mean that it's unsafe. And I feel like this became more popular several years ago, that whole, like, if you can't pronounce it, don't eat it. But I still see people on Instagram, on TikTok, like reading off ingredients and they're like, oh, what are these additives? I don't know what this is. Like, this is definitely bad for you. So can we talk about Additives and this whole fear of things that we don't know what the word means.
1: Yeah, I, I always like to sh- share. There's like a graphic that breaks out like the chemical compounds in an, in a banana, and a lot of those compounds are difficult to pronounce. So obviously, like when we we can break everything that we eat into chemical compounds. Everything we consume is made up of chemical compounds that are very difficult to pronounce. But whether you can pronounce a chemical compound or not has you know, nothing to do with its safety. And again, I think it just goes back to like humans being bad at assessing risk because we just assume if we're familiar with something like it's safer than this thing that like, I don't know what that is. I don't know how to pronounce that. And so we just assume like it's scary and it's unsafe when in reality, I mean, I've, I've talked about some, you know, ingredient lists that have the, the chemical names of vitamins listed out. And you know, that, that on its own can look scary. And it's like, what is that? And it's like, it's literally just vitamins. So we have to understand too, that, yeah, I mean, whether you can pronounce it or not, doesn't tell you anything about its safety. We tend to be obviously more comfortable with things like you can buy at the store and you use in your kitchen, but That doesn't mean that something in a food that you wouldn't necessarily have in your kitchen, it it doesn't just automatically mean that it's unsafe. And a lot of times there are additional things that are used in packaged foods and stuff like that to help to increase shelf life, which reduces food waste. And, you know, yes, it might not be necessary if you're making the same thing at home, but it is A lot of times helping to make the food safer. Um, So by the time you do, you know, buy it and you consume it, it's, you know, not, there's not like a ton of mold in it or a ton of bacteria. And, you know, again, just because that might not be a familiar ingredient to you or you can't pronounce it like it, it doesn't just automatically mean that it's unsafe.
0: Yeah. I, I get frustrated sometimes. Like a a mom said to me the other day, she was asking me about Trader Joe's and she's like, Oh, I never go there. They have so much like packaged convenience type foods. Probably nothing there is actually good for you. Right. And I was like, well, actually there's plenty that you can eat there that would be good for you. And just because it has those additives, on something. Like you said, that often makes it safer. And I don't know what people expect in terms of like, you can just make fresh bread the way you would make it at home in your kitchen and expect that to sit on a shelf and not be moldy. Right. right. Yeah. So I think also too, with like things like added sugar, added sodium, people say, why are these in foods? And a lot of times it's to preserve them and keep them safe. Yeah. So a lot of like the additives that you
1: might not be familiar with, like they're really, I mean, there's a lot of the like preservatives are either like adjusting, you know, pH. So it might be, I mean, even like something like ascorbic acid, vitamin C can be used as a preservative because it lowers the pH and, you know, depending on what the pH of the food is that can help to prevent um, microbial growth and stuff like that. So preservatives really are usually like adjusting the pH of a food, or they are controlling for water activity, which is something I talk about on my page as well. Like under a certain water activity, it's it's similar to moisture. It's a little bit different, but under a certain water activity, you know, mold, bacteria, yeast, they can't grow. And like you said, like when you're making something at home, you know, by the time you consume it, you're not really worrying about anything growing on it because you're consuming it quickly whereas in the store like as a food scientist we have to take that into account we have to make sure that whatever shelf life we're putting on that food that it stays good for that period of time so a lot of these things really are just like adjusting the pH or adjusting the water activity and that doesn't make the food like it makes it safer and it's
0: it's not making it less healthy either necessarily so right now why do you think like I notice, I don't know if these people are just the loudest or there really are that many of them who assume that the government is trying to harm them and the government has these regulations, but they can't be trusted. Or if certain countries ban certain ingredients, that means that those ingredients are bad and the U.S. just isn't doing its job. Like, do you have any anything to say on all of that?
1: Yeah, I've covered, that's like a huge thing on social media right now is like the band in Europe. I've covered that so much. So yes, I mean, different countries are going to have different regulatory frameworks. I mean, surprisingly enough, because it, it doesn't seem like it from what you hear on social media, but like European countries in the U.S. have very similar ways of regulating food. Of course, there still are going to be differences because they are just different, you know, regulatory bodies that are, that are, you know, regulating food. And so the U S tends to take more of like a risk-based approach where Europe tends to take more of a hazard-based approach, which, so they might ban something based on, they might say it's, it, it could be hazardous, whereas that's not necessarily taking into account the dose. So risk is exposure times hazard. So it takes account into the, it takes into account the dose. So so something might be approved in Europe or sorry, banned in Europe and approved in the U.S., but it's regulated in the U.S. where, you know, just because something is approved in the U.S. doesn't mean that we can just use it at whatever amount we want to in whatever product we want to either. So there might be something that is they just decided to ban it in Europe, whereas it's still approved in the U.S., but like there are regulations regarding like how much we can use in a product based on again, toxicity data, so we understand what safe levels are. So that could be a difference. You always hear it the the one way where it's like banned in Europe, but like there are many ingredients that are also banned in the US that are still approved in Europe. So it happens the other way around too. Again, just because we there are just differences in how we come to those conclusions sometime. And you can't just automatically assume that if something's banned, that means that it's automatically unsafe. I mean, a lot of like politics goes into this as well. You know, consumers petitioning for something to, I mean, that has happened as well. And they're like, okay, well, if we're, if, if consumers don't want us to use it anymore, like we're just going to ban it. So it has more to do with, you know, other things. It's not always just based on safety as well. And so, yeah, I mean, you just, you can't assume that like, just because something is banned in another country that it's unsafe or that we're using it at unsafe levels because we still approve it a lot of times too, those videos are actually just incorrect. There's a lot of them that talk about like specific colors and I'm like, no, those actually aren't banned there. So like a lot of I see that all the time about the colors. Yeah. So a lot of ingredients are just listed differently. So in the U S you'll see like FD and C red 40, whereas in Europe it's going to be E and then like a three digit number. So they use E numbers Mm. there for additives. So a lot of times, too, it's like, no, you won't see FD&C, you know, red 40, but that's because they don't list it like that. Or high fructose corn syrup is listed as fructose glucose syrup over in Europe. So there's just differences in labeling. Yes, sometimes it can be banned. I mean, that happens the other way around. There's actually more color, food colors that are approved in Europe than in the U.S. That doesn't mean that their food. I would never use that reasoning to say like their food is less safe because it, that's not what that means. But yeah, that that's a huge thing going on right now because I think, especially on TikTok, people see that people are getting attention and they just repeat it and they, their video gets attention. So. I've done so many videos on that topic I'm so <laughs> by now, but it's so frustrating because that's never to say that our regulations are perfect by any means. I mean, yes, there might be something that's approved right now that with more evidence, we end up banning it later on. Like that's, that's not to say we know everything and everything's perfect right now. Cause sometimes I feel like when I, when I cover these myths, so often people are like, well, you just think everything's perfect and nothing needs to change. And like, that's not true i'm just like combating these myths which are are definitely not true but there's there's also you know room for improvement as well and but overall i would say like our food is very safe from that people tend to really blow up the the concern about these additives that are in foods at very low amounts that are very regulated and it just bothers me too because, like, the U.S. and European countries have some of the safest food in the world, and yeah. we're really like splitting hairs when we're like, "Oh, this versus this." Yes. Like, Ugh. we have such safe food. Like, we we're so like fortunate to be able to be complaining about these like very little risks because our food is so safe and like we don't even realize it. So that's just frustrating too.
0: A hundred percent. I feel like I wish I. It's, it's much simpler than people make it like, you know, think about the foods that you know, to be healthy and eat more of those than the foods, you know, to be less nutritionally dense. Like it kind of is that simple, but people really want to find like the, they want to have something important to say. I feel like sometimes, and they get caught up in these little things that, like you said, it really, it's safe in these small amounts and you don't need to stress yourself out about it like put that energy somewhere else.
1: Right. (laughs) Sometimes too. I mean, I talk about that a lot too. Like
0: the stress
1: regarding like, oh my gosh, like, am I poisoning myself, my family? Like that stress is going to be worse for you than, you know, eating these safe additives. And that is something that I struggled with in the past, not really understanding a lot of this, you know, having a lot of foods that I avoided and thought were bad. And like, that anxiety and stress. I mean, you have to understand too that that's, that's not necessarily
0: healthy either. So yeah. agree. Now there's another thing that I get asked about a lot and that's oils. And it seems like whenever I recommend a packaged snack that I get all these comments that are like, Ugh, there's junky oils in there. What's with all these junky oils. So can you talk about oils?
1: Yeah, that's another one that just like, I don't know what, like, I'm not sure. I think that whole thing started with like, like the keto and carnivore diets, because they're all about like animal fats, like butter and like these. And so somewhere along the line, there just started being tons of videos saying that these vegetable oils are inflammatory and Process, which yes, they're processed, but that doesn't mean that's, that's another word that just like always implies like bad or unhealthy when in reality, like, yeah, there are things that are processed that doesn't necessarily mean it's bad and unhealthy, but I don't know where, I don't exactly know where this like inflammatory thing came from. I feel like it's the new, like when everyone was calling things toxic and there, it was like, what do you mean? Like what evidence? I feel like people have switched it to like inflammatory now. Yes, so it's yeah. like, they'll just say like, oh, this is inflammatory. And you know, you question like, what do you mean? Like based on what evidence? And it's like, they don't even really necessarily know what they mean by that. Like, it's just something people say to like, get people scared about an ingredient. And that's just not really how food works in general. Like unless you're allergic to something like one single ingredient isn't just going to cause inflammation in in every single person at any amount and so that has to do with like the your overall diet but yeah these oils are mostly made up of unsaturated fatty acids which actually can be better for your heart than saturated fatty acids. So it's just interesting that these groups that decided to say these oils are bad and inflammatory, they are pushing saturated fats, which actually can be worse. So I I just, it doesn't make any sense just the fact that they are processed also doesn't mean that they are bad or unhealthy. So a lot of refining of oils actually increases their smoke points. So specific
0: oils can be better to cook with at higher heat applications than other oils. So oh, I that's just another really thing like, people will tell me, Oh, that's rancid because they yeah. that's another,
1: <laughs> that's another, I don't know. I don't, ex- I was like trying to figure out where that came from or what people mean when they say that. And it doesn't make any sense. Like, no, yes. Fats can go rancid. Even saturated fats can go rancid. And unsaturated fats have the potential to oxidize more readily than saturated fats. But that doesn't mean that they're just like automatically always rancid. Like, (laughs) I don't know, it's just so weird to me. It's like saying like, oh, apples spoil faster than crackers. Therefore, like apples are always spoiled. Like, no, that doesn't make any sense. I don't know where that myth came from. But yeah, I mean, if if you've ever smelled a rancid oil, like you would know that it's rancid. (laughs) I have. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, the only... Really the only concern with these oils, as far as like cooking with with them, making sure you're not, you know, burning them, overheating them, making sure you're choosing an oil with a high enough smoke point for the application. But these myths that they're rancid and they're inflammatory just like have no scientific basis whatsoever. And like there are human trials showing that they are not inflammatory. So we actually have evidence showing that they aren't. I don't know know where those myths came from or like why they're persisting so much.
0: They're just not true. (laughs) I hear you. I, I don't want people to be scared off from using cooking oils just because they hear this stuff on the internet. Now I have one more question for you, knowing all that, you know, all the research you've done and all your food science knowledge, are there any foods that you like, avoid for you or your family? Is there anything that you're like, will not eat that. Not Uh just based on like personal preference, but you're like, this is not safe.
1: No, like from the safety person, other than like my daughter's peanut allergy. (laughs) Um, (laughs) other than that, no, I mean, honestly, there's not, I get that question so much and really like there, it all has to do with, you know, dose and your overall diet. Like I truly don't think there's anything that you know, just overall, everybody needs to be avoiding, you know, other than, you know, if you're allergic to it or just don't like it or anything like that. But there's really not, I mean, like I said, our food is very safe. There isn't like a specific additive that I would say, like, you need to avoid. So yeah, I mean, my answer, I guess, is no. And I I get that question a lot. And I'm just like, no,
0: there's, there's really not anything that I would say, you know, is I assumed that was going to be your answer, but yeah. <laughs> I, I wanted to confirm. I mean, yeah. I think, but what people need to not hear from that is that you're not saying eat just whatever, like you're not saying to not care about nutrition or health. Yeah, Is that I right?
1: Think that a lot too. It's like, oh, you're saying all foods are the same and you should just, and it's like, no, that's, that's also not what I'm saying. I'm just saying like, from a safety perspective, our food's very safe and there aren't specific additives that we need to be avoiding. But like you said, I mean, obviously nutrition matters. Your, you know, the, the quality of your overall diet matters and that's where dietitians come in <laughs> <laughs> and when I refer to dietitians. <laughs> yes. I love it.
0: Is there anything else you'd want to say, like, especially as a mom to other parents out there about feeding their families?
1: Yeah, I would just say, like, if you're following accounts that are stressing you out and, think you know, making you think you're poisoning your family or what you have access to is, you know, just toxic, or if they use those, word, those like, inflammatory words, stuff like that. I, I mean, honestly, I would say stop following those accounts, find more evidence-based accounts, because really, like, it's not healthy to be stressing out going grocery shopping and, you know, having so much anxiety over food and just realizing, yeah, that our food is very safe and it's not something you should be stressing out over. And that is something I stressed out over a lot in the past. And yeah, so there, there's a lot of accounts out there that if you follow them, you'll literally be like stress out every time you go to the grocery
0: store. So yes. I would say like, stop following those accounts because typically, they don't really know what they're talking about anyways. So (laughs) I agree 100%. And one thing that I want to add to that is that sometimes they will show research studies, but it's not actually related to these ingredients or additives when used in a food setting in the way that we would actually consume them.
1: Yeah, actually a good example of that. (laughs) So there was a large account that has a lot of followers. The other day, just she posts a lot about glyphosate and like oh avoid these ones because they whatever and again it comes down to dose and just confusing like occupational exposure that's the other thing too with pesticides like they might cite a study showing hazards from occupational exposure and obviously that's way different than potential parts per billion residues in foods so like you said I mean I think those like more like pseudoscience accounts sometimes are like catching on, like, oh, people are looking for studies. So they'll cite stuff. And it's like, you actually go read the study and it's like, that has nothing to do with this, or it has to do with occupational exposure. That doesn't have to do with dietary exposure. So that's a good thing, too. It might look legit like they're citing sources, but, and it's difficult to evaluate research, too. Just the normal person doesn't have enough time, doesn't know how to do that. So
0: hopefully accounts like ours, too, can help with that. So, yeah. But I think just your overall message that if it's an account that makes it sound like it's an emergency, you need to avoid these foods, they are toxic, that that's probably 99.9% not true. And don't follow them. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I just take such comfort in knowledge, and I hope that everybody listening can also feel that way. And you do often cite to studies and things in your posts. So if people are looking for more information, they can definitely dive into your posts, right?
1: Yeah. And then I also on Instagram, I have them like organized in highlights at the top of my page. So if you are interested in a specific topic, I check, look through my highlights and I have like resources linked in those as well.
0: Perfect. Thank you. Thanks. (laughs) Did this episode totally blow your mind? Did you already know these things? I'm just curious where this landed with you. Send me a DM on Instagram and let me know what you thought of this episode. Or as always, you can definitely leave me a five-star rating and review here on Apple Podcasts. I would absolutely love that. So thank you for listening and I'll talk to you next week.